Now, would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Chronicles chapter 30? As believers in Christ, as disciples of Christ, hopefully, we have a methodical Bible study. There are many ways to study scriptures and all of it should have as its goal the edification of the believer. We've been in 1 Samuel, then 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles. Now we're in 2 Chronicles, 2 Kings. There's nothing relative to tonight's passage that is paralleled in 2 Kings, so we won't see anything from that tonight. However, as we pour through these passages of Scripture, and I think I've mentioned this before, but one thing to take note of as we as we look at these things in the Old Testament about kings and wars and, and uh, the various nations uh, that uh, Israel and then Israel and Judah and Judah fight against. One thing we've learned is that the Bible takes note even of the names of the kings of the other nations. Which tells us, of course, that it is God who sets up kings and kingdoms. We are destined by the sovereign purpose and, and will of God to make our way throughout history, every generation, to make our way finally and ultimately to the kingdom of God. It's my belief that Christ himself, the King of Kings, will rule and reign on this planet for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, he will give up the, king, the kingdoms up to the Father. And we are taught there's a new heaven and a new earth. Not a lot said about it, a little bit. We probably couldn't contain the, an iota of the truth of it if, if it was given. So as we study these passages like what we're in, number one, we marvel over God's oversight of his people. The Bible is very clear about God's particular relationship with Israel. He has a covenant with them. We've studied also in the Old Testament how that covenant is a covenant of the people in their land. To paraphrase various parts in the Old Testament, God invites 
every generation really, to note how he deals with Israel. Thus, so that the nations can know that he is God. Of course, a lot going on right now. But looking back here through the history given to us in what we've seen from Samuel through to what we're in today, tonight, we note how God, of course, is not ignorant of the events of the world, of the hearts of kings. Thus it's said over and over again in one way or another, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Or, in the case of kings in Judah, certain of them, and he did that which was right, good, in the sight of the Lord. So God is weighing these national leaders against his own definition of good and evil. As we study it then, <clears throat> we should take note of God's particular care. Even in the smallest of details, especially where those details will affect his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Remember how Elijah was sent after he made his initial appearance to Ahab. He was sent out to a brook there to be fed by birds and to drink from a brook that was drying up every day because of the drought that Elijah himself had, had called for in the will and by the direction of God. He was there, a little stream of water that was otherwise meaningless, but God knew where he was. And then the time came, God sent him to the widow at Zarephath. And she was among those who were enemies of Israel. And here is an Israelite, a Hebrew. And he is receiving room and board in her pitiful little hut. When he got there, she had just a drop of oil and maybe a little less than a handful of grain, flour. And she said, I'm going to make a cake for my son and me, and then we'll die. He directed her every day, probably maybe more than once a day. Just keep going back to the cruise of oil and to the barrel of flour. And she did, and she just kept getting it. And it just was always there. God taking care of his prophet, who through his ministry would call the nation back to Yahweh. It was amazing, really. Then we've studied these kings all the way through Kings and Chronicles. And the division under Rehoboam, David's grandson, into the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital Samaria and 
the southern kingdom of Judah. And on that throne sat the son of David, a son of David descended through time. And Jerusalem was their capital and the temple was there. The priesthood was there. So we saw how the northern kingdom just declined absolutely into sin and degradation. Idol worship, false gods. We defined the horrible behavior that resulted from this worship of those false gods and goddesses. And just most recently, and we'll see it once again, we, we've seen it in uh, First Chron- uh, Second Chronicles, the overwhelming of Assyria, over, oh, the Assyria overwhelming the northern kingdom, and removing them from their place among nations and dispersing the people and making them slaves to the world. The northern kingdom, those 10 tribes. Judah is still going. But because of the error of Jehoshaphat, who introduced his household to the household of Ahab, where the household of David was introduced to the terrible things of idolatry that, was, that were so openly practiced by Jezebel and Ahab and the influence. We saw how that influence began to make its way into the house of David. How that for a while, there was a time when a priestess of Baal, of Baal, was actually the ruler for a couple of years in the southern kingdom of Judah until the high priest rose up and did what was necessary. She thinking that all of the descendants of David had been slain, oh, but one had been hidden away by a nursemaid who became the next king. So it descended on, then comes Ahaz, one of very few kings in Judah about whom it was said he did that which was evil. The sight of the Lord. He closed the doors to the temple. The people had nothing else to worship, so they, they ran. You know, the devil fills that vacuum, and here they came with Baal worship and all that it brought with it. The horrible lifestyle that had inundated the Jews of Judah those of the southern kingdom. And so there were, there were so-called places of worship on every high hill, practically in every backyard. They even had established temples of worship and a place of worship in Jerusalem. And the priesthood had grown silent. The worship was no more. The temple was simply displaced from the lives of the people. Then Ahaz had a son, Hezekiah. And he did that which was right and good in the sight of the Lord. So as we study these things, we note how God has the latitude, of course, he's God, he can do anything he wants to do. 
to intervene in the, in the trek of his people, to raise up a king, to call out a prophet, to send a famine, to bring a war, that they might be brought to their knees, call on Yahweh. When Hezekiah became king, Judah was a vassal of Assyria. And the people were steeped in idol worship. And because of that, their economy had weakened. Being a vassal state, that meant that the king of Assyria could extract whatever he wanted to from the economy of Judah and from the people. And he did. And they were far less than they once were. As a matter of fact, their boundaries had diminished. The enemies were setting up in the land that belonged to the people of the Lord. And God raised up Hezekiah. We have to take note, not only to marvel at the history and the power of God in those days, but the principle of God that exists to know that he still has the power, of course, to bring nations to their knees if the time has come. That they might discover repentance, that their prosperity might be lost, as in the case of Israel after the death of Jeroboam II, their military might would be lost because of the selfish infighting. See, the son of there, there was no family that sat on the throne in the northern kingdom. It was always a political thing. Who could do the worst thing and, and be the most feared among his peers to gain ascendancy to the throne? And after those 41 years of Jeroboam II and the greatest military and economic power in that place, remember God said, I'm not doing this, Jeroboam. I'm not doing this because you guys are good. I'm doing it because they're in such bad shape and they're my people and I love them. So Hosea and Amos write about that. And they, they describe the prosperity of, of the people. But they also describe the crookedness of the justice system. And the growing uh, chasm, the growing gap between the elites of the powerful uh, positions and the rest of the people. So... God said through Hosea, the more they were increased, the more they sinned against me. The more I let them have, the more wicked they became and the more godless. So they finally collapsed and they're gone. Although we have to keep it in perspective we're, we're not quite to that point here as we've already passed it in 2 Kings. But we'll, we'll, we'll take note of some things here that, that reveal to us 
God's message to the people in Judah, be careful. You're headed in the wrong direction. So Hezekiah comes. God deals with kings and kingdoms and people and has compassion on his people. And of course, reserves the right. Well, he can do anything. He has every right to strengthen the people if he sees fit, to raise them up again, to give them prosper, to give them a good king. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Just to give them a good king, Hezekiah. And what a difference it makes all across the nation, really. In the time of Hezekiah, this not only is a lesson in history for us that we might understand the principles of God as he deals with his people and as he has the right to oversee kings and kingdoms and to raise up whom he would and to put down whom he would, but also gives us really a, a, a call to apply what we're reading to the day in which we live because it's, it's, it's never less today in God's dealings with mankind than it was at any other point in time or history. So then, here we are, Second Chronicles chapter 30. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah. Now these people have fallen into terrible idolatry. They haven't known what temple worship was for years. They probably, at least the youngest of the generations, probably didn't understand anything about the priesthood, the law of Moses, the requirements that God had made on his people. But Hezekiah is moved to make things right. So he sent to all of Israel and Judah. Now that's the northern and southern kingdoms. Israel is all but lost at this point. So we're backing up in time just a, a little bit from what we saw in 2 Kings. But they are in terrible, they're in much worse shape spiritually than Judah. So he sends letters out to all the people everywhere. He also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh to come to the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem, the temple, to perform the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, God of Israel. They had none in the Passover. They wouldn't be alive if God had not given them the Passover back in Egypt. that nation wouldn't have survived. But because of the blood, they did. The blood of the lamb. So to celebrate Passover, the king and his officers and the entire congregation took counsel in Jerusalem to perform the Passover sacrifice in the second month. Now that's not the correct month. But the king felt such an urgency that he wants to move forward 
in worship and open the doors. We saw this last time and open, reopen the doors to the temple. He called for the priesthood to come in and to sanctify themselves, to do the things required by law to purify themselves. They hadn't been purified. They were not, they were not prepared in any way to minister to the people as the priesthood. And then he said for them to sanctify the house of God. It had fallen into disrepair and, and uh, there were articles, uh, and there were things in that trash. There was garbage, there were things in there that shouldn't be there. The, the house of God should not have been in such a shape as it was. We saw that last time. To sanctify the house of God, to sanctify themselves. So, to perform the Passover in the second month. The king is so moved that he wants to do this, even though it's not the month that it's supposed to be done, in which it's supposed to be done. For they could not perform it at that time, for the priests had not consecrated themselves sufficiently, and the people had not gathered to Jerusalem. So there was a, there was a reason why they just weren't ready at the proper time. And the matter was proper in the eyes of the king and in the eyes of the entire congregation. They issued a statement to announce throughout all of Israel from Beersheba to Dan to come to perform a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, the God of Israel, in Jerusalem. Because for many years they had not performed it as it is written. It was a mandate from Yahweh to his people that they would always remember that he is their God and they're his people and that he saved them and brought them out of bondage. And it happened in that last of the plagues when those people celebrated or observed the first Passover. And so the edict of death passed over those houses where there was blood on the doorpost, the blood of the Passover lamb. I'll see the blood, I will pass over you. So, hadn't done it for many years. They spelt no, they, they, they put it this way, they felt no special connection to Yahweh all during those years because of Ahaz, the evil king in Judah. They'd lost touch with what worship is. They knew how to misbehave in doing the terrible things that they did in the so-called worship of the fertility cult of Baal, the Baalim, the Asherah and the Ashtarah, because it, it was centered around aberrant sexual behavior. That was worship. Consumed the people. Just like today. So they're being called for many years, they, you know, Passover. Maybe they had to be reminded that they wouldn't even be there if God hadn't spared them. In the time of Passover, for many years, they hadn't observed it. 
So the couriers went with letters from the hand of the king and his officers <laughs> throughout all Israel and Judah and according to the king's command, saying, Sons of Israel, return to Yahweh, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, so that he may return to the remnant that has escaped from the clutches of the kings of Assyria. All right, now look at this closely. Israel and Judah, all of the tribes, all of them, return to Yahweh, come to Jerusalem, observe the Passover, let's celebrate the truth that we are the people of God. We have a covenant with, he has established a covenant with us. And together we can escape the clutches of the kings of Assyria. Assyria was the rising power. Until his death, Jeroboam was king of the northern kingdom of Israel, which in his day was the mightiest power in that part of the world. No one could question his power and authority. But when he died and all of this political conspiracy and, and fight to get the throne, infighting and lust for power among the political elites, it began to erode quickly. It quickly eroded the power of the northern kingdom of Israel until finally Assyria came and defeated them and enslaved them. That hasn't happened yet, but they're in the clutches of those kings, of the succeeding kings of Assyria. As, as each king comes, the power of Assyria has grown. And so Hezekiah knows where they're headed and he says, let's worship Yahweh. This is our only way out of this. This kingdom is growing too hard and too fast and too high and too mighty. Come and worship. Return, repent, that he might return and bring us out from the clutches of the evil kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers or like your brothers who acted treacherously against Yahweh, the God of your fathers. And he made them a desolation, as you can see. Now do not be stiff-necked like your fathers. Give a hand to Yahweh and come to his sanctuary, which he consecrated forever, and worship Yahweh, your God, that his burning wrath returns from you. Now, God, of course, consecrated that temple and all about it in the time of Solomon. And that you remember that we studied that, and then the glorious the glorious worship service that Solomon brought the people into. For when you return to Yahweh, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before their captors and shall return to this land for Yahweh your God is gracious and merciful and he will not turn his face away from you if you return from him, return to him. This is, this is forever true with God. What does 1 John say if, if we confess our sin? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then, he will not turn his face away from you 
if you return to him. Now the couriers passed from city to city in the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, even to Zebulun, and they laughed at them and mocked them. These tribes in Israel laughed at them. That's old timey, that's old fashioned. You want us to go back to church, pray to God. You want us to do like what our fathers did. Well, that's ridiculous. We're a new generation. We're living a new life. We see life in a new set of lenses. So they laughed at them and mocked them. But people from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of Elohim was also upon Judah to give them one accord to perform the command of the king and the officers concerning the word of Yahweh, the word of God. And a huge crowd assembled in Jerusalem to observe the festival of Metzot. That's the feast of uh, weeks. That's of unleavened bread. Now, unleavened bread lasted a year. You will note in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that Passover, which gives immediately to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, are often interchangeable. So here, because of the occurrence and the length of time with people getting involved, it just goes right on into the, into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the second month, an exceeding large assembly. And they arose and removed. So they get to Jerusalem and they see altars to, to Baal and Molech and to Ashtaroth and Asherah. So what do they do? Here it is. They arose and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for incense. They removed and cast them into the Kidron Valley and they slaughtered the Passover sacrifice on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were embarrassed. And they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the house of Yahweh. So... Under this great conviction, the Levites completed what they were to do. Here are all these people seeking worship, but they needed the Levites. You see, the priest, the priest would stand between the worshiper and God, and he would, he, he would be there for the offering and, and so forth. They had to be ready. All these people were coming. They stood in their station as it was their custom, according to the Torah of the law of Moses, the man of God. And the priests sprinkled the blood from the hand of the Levites. For there were many among the congregation who had not consecrated themselves. Now here's the, here's the deal. Worshippers also had to go through a ritual that they might be consecrated to engage in the worship for which they'd come. But there was, there was such a crowd and there was such urgency in the hearts of the people to turn back to Yahweh, these who had come. Now, some of them, as we saw, mocked and laughed at it. But those who had come were a great assembly of people, a great congregation. They didn't, apparently, they didn't even realize that they were supposed to go through certain rituals before they did what they were about to do. Well, what are you going to do? You know, the Levites were in charge of the slaughter of the Passover sacrifices for everyone who was unclean to make it holy for Yahweh. 
For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves. For they ate the Passover sacrifice, not as it is written. For Hezekiah, here's what Hezekiah did. He prayed for them. And here's what he said. He said, may good Yahweh, may the good Lord, may good Yahweh atone for anyone who has set his whole heart to seek the Lord God, the God of our fathers, Yahweh, the God of our fathers. Though he be not cleaned according to the purity that pertains the holy things. And Yahweh hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. It's a beautiful example of mercy over mandate. Grace over law. It's very obvious. These people just didn't know. Probably the Levites were embarrassed because they may have overlooked major parts of the celebration, the ceremony, because they were so out of practice themselves and out of touch. But the hearts of the people were right. And they came to worship Yahweh and they wanted to observe the Passover and these other things. And so Hezekiah sees what's happening. And he prays to the good Yahweh. To the goodness of Yahweh. And he asks for Yahweh to accept this worship of anyone who has his heart set on seeking God Yahweh, the God of our fathers, though he be not cleaned according to the purity that pertains to the holy things, Yahweh hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. That is, he declared them spiritually acceptable. The sons of Israel who were present in Jerusalem observed the Passover of unleavened bread for seven days with great joy. The Levites and the priests praised Yahweh day by day with powerful, the word can also be loud, with loud, God help us, music, huh? instruments to Yahweh. Hezekiah encouraged all of the Levites, whoops, who demonstrated good skill in the service of Yahweh. They ate the sacrifice uh, the appointed season uh, of, the, of the appointed season for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and thanking and confessing. The word, the, the little phrase there means the same thing. It it's, has a multiple meaning. To thank while confessing sin, to give thanks. And thanking and confessing sin to Yahweh, the God of their fathers, to remember <laughs> old time religion, I guess. The entire congregation took counsel to keep another seven days. They said, we're having such fun. Let's keep this going. Let's don't stop. I mean, they were outside the boundaries, but they were enjoying God and God was enjoying them. They kept seven days with gladness or with joy. For Hezekiah, the king of Judah, separated for the congregation 1,000 bulls, 7,000 small cattle. The officers, the officers separated for the congregation 1,000 bulls, 10,000 small cattle. The priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. Can you imagine 
how busy this kept the Levites. Killing these sacrifices and spilling this blood nonstop for these days in great numbers. The entire congregation of Judah and the priests and Levites, the entire congregation that came from Israel and even the strangers who had joined themselves to Judah. They came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah rejoiced. There was great joy in Jerusalem for since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had not been the like of this kind of worship in Jerusalem. The priests, the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation to heaven. By repentance, by return to Yahweh, worshiping him the best way that they knew how in their day, they prayed to him. He heard their prayer which came up to him even to heaven. So we, we could apply this even today. I mean, listen, our nation is morally and spiritually bankrupt. That's probably too kind of a term to use. I've tried through the weeks and months that we've been in this passage to, to um, delicately and tastefully, if there's such a thing, to describe the horrible worship that the people engaged in as worship to the fertility cult, the Baalim and, and the gods and goddesses. It, it involved every kind of sexual aberration you could think of, sexual misbehavior on every scale and level. This was worship to them. It had overwhelmed the people But the time comes when people recognize, you know, this is not right. Something is wrong. And so this great congregation of people separated themselves from those who would not come. And they came before Yahweh. And they got happy for a long time. And there was true revival in the land. You know who it all started with though? Started with the king. You remember that last time? It started with the king. The Bible said the first month of the first year. He didn't waste any time. He did everything he could do to call the people back to the worship of the true and living God. The people responded. We'll continue that next time, but for now, let's have our deacon prayer time.